Section 19 of Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Reichert. Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic by Benedetto Croce. Translated by Douglas Ainsley. Historical Summary, Part 1. 1. Aesthetic Ideas in Greco-Roman Antiquity The question as to whether aesthetic should be looked upon as ancient or modern has often been discussed. The answer will depend upon the view taken of the nature of aesthetic. Benedetto Croce has proved that aesthetic is the science of expressive activity, but this knowledge cannot be reached until has been defined the nature of imagination, of representation, of expression, or whatever we may term that faculty which is theoretic but not intellectual, which gives knowledge of the individual but not of the universal. Now the deviations from this, the correct theory, may arise in two ways, by defect or by excess. Negation of the special aesthetic activity, or of its autonomy, is an instance of the former, this amounts to a mutilation of the reality of the spirit. Of the latter, the substitution or superposition of another mysterious and non-existent activity is an example. These errors each take several forms. That which errs by defect may be a. pure hedonism, which looks upon art as merely sensual pleasure, b. rigoristic hedonism, agreeing with A, but adding that art is irreconcilable with the loftiest activities of man, C, moralistic or pedagogic hedonism, which admits, with the two former, that art is mere sensuality, but believes that it may not only be harmless, but of some service to morals, if kept in proper subjection and obedience. The error by excess also assumes several forms, but these are indeterminable a priori. This view is fully dealt with under the name of mystic, in the theory, and in the appendix. Greco-Roman antiquity was occupied with the problem in all these forms. In Greece, the problem of art and of the artistic faculty arose for the first time after the sophistic movement, as a result of the Socratic polemic. With the appearance of the word mimesis, or mimetic, we have a first attempt at grouping the arts and the expression allegoric, or its equivalent, used in defense of Homer's poetry, reminds us of what Plato called, quote, the old quarrel between philosophy and poetry, end quote. But when internal facts were all looked upon as mere phenomena of opinion or feeling, of pleasure or of pain, of illusion or of arbitrary caprice, there could be no question of beautiful or ugly, or difference between the true and the beautiful, or between the beautiful and the good. The problem of the nature of art assumes as solved those problems concerning the difference between rational and irrational, material and spiritual, bare fact and value, etc. 
This was first done in the Socratic period, and therefore the aesthetic problem could only arise after Socrates. And, in fact, it does arise with Plato, the author of the only great negation of art which appears in the history of ideas. Is art rational or irrational? Does it belong to the noble region of the soul, where dwell philosophy and virtue, or does it cohabit with sensuality and with crude passion in the lower regions? This was the question that Plato asked, and thus was the aesthetic problem stated for the first time. His Gorgias remarks, with sceptical acumen, that tragedy is a deception which brings honour alike to deceived and to deceiver, and therefore it is blameworthy not to know how to deceive, and not to allow oneself to be deceived. This suffices for Gorgias, but Plato the philosopher must resolve the doubt. If it be in fact deception, down with tragedy and the other arts. If it be not deception, then what is the place of tragedy in philosophy and in righteous life? His answer was that art or mimetic does not realize the ideas or the truth of things, but merely reproduces natural or artificial things, which are themselves mere shadows of the ideas. Art, then, is but a shadow of a shadow, a thing of third-rate degree. The artificer fashions the object which the painter paints. The artificer copies the divine idea, and the painter copies him. Art, therefore, does not belong to the rational, but to the irrational, sensual sphere of the soul. It can serve but for sensual pleasure, which disturbs and obscures. Therefore must mimetic, poetry, and poets be excluded from the perfect republic. Plato observed with truth that imitation does not rise to the logical or conceptual sphere, of which poets and painters as such are in fact ignorant but he failed to realize that there could be any form of knowledge other than the intellectual. We now know that intuition lies on this side, or outside the intellect, from which it differs as much as it does from passion and sensuality. Plato, with his fine aesthetic sense, would have been grateful to anyone who could have shown him how to place art, which he loved and practiced so supremely himself, among the lofty activities of the spirit but in his day no one could give him such assistance his conscience and his reason saw that art makes the false seem the true and therefore he resolutely banished it to the lower regions of the spirit the tendency among those who followed plato in time was to find some means of retaining art and of depriving it of the baleful influence which it was believed to exercise Life without art was to the beauty-loving Greek an impossibility, although he was equally conscious of the demands of reason and of morality. Thus it happened that art, which, on the purely hedonistic hypothesis, had been treated as a beautiful courtesan, became in the hands of the moralist a pedagogue. Aristophanes and Strabo, and above all Aristotle, dwell upon the didactic and moralistic possibility of poetry, 
For Plutarch, poetry seems to have been a sort of preparation for philosophy, a twilight to which the eyes should grow accustomed before emerging into the full light of day. Among the Romans we find Lucretius, comparing the beauties of his great poem to the sweet yellow honey, with which doctors are wont to anoint the rim of the cup containing their bitter drugs. Horace, as so frequently, takes his inspiration from the Greek when he offers the double view of art as courtesan and as pedagogue. In his Ad Pisones occur the passages in which we find mingled with the poetic function that of the orator, the practical and the aesthetic. Quote, Was Virgil a poet or an orator? End quote. The triple duty of pleasing, moving, and teaching was imposed upon the poet. Then, with a thought for the supposed meretricious nature of their art, the ingenious Horace remarks that both must employ the seductions of form. The mystic view of art appeared only in late antiquity with Plotinus. The curious error of looking upon Plato as the head of this school and as the father of aesthetic assumes that he who felt obliged to banish art altogether from the domain of the higher functions of the spirit was yet ready to yield to it the highest place there. The mystical view of aesthetic accords a lofty place indeed to aesthetic, placing it even above philosophy. The enthusiastic praise of the beautiful to be found in the Gorgias, Philebus, Phaedrus, and Symposium is responsible for this misunderstanding, but it is well to make perfectly clear that the beautiful, of which Plato discourses in those dialogues, has nothing to do with the artistically beautiful, nor with the mysticism of the Neoplatonicians. Yet the thinkers of antiquity were aware that a problem lay in the direction of aesthetic, and Xenophon records the sayings of Socrates, that the beautiful is, quote, that which is fitting and answers to the end required, end quote. Elsewhere, he says, quote, It is that which is loved. End quote. Plato likewise vibrates between various views and offers several solutions. Sometimes he appears almost to confound the beautiful with the true, the good, and the divine. At others, he leans toward the utilitarian view of Socrates. At others, he distinguishes between what is beautiful in itself and what possesses but a relative beauty. At other times, again, he is a hedonist, and makes it to consist of pure pleasure, that is, of pleasure with no shadow of pain. Or he finds it in measure and proportion, or in the very sound, the very color itself. The reason for all this vacillation of definition lay in Plato's exclusion of the artistic or mimetic fact from the domain of the higher spiritual activities. The Hippias Major expresses this uncertainty more completely than any of the other dialogues. What is the beautiful? That is the question asked at the beginning, and left unanswered at the end. The Platonic Socrates and Hippias propose the most various solutions, one after another, but always come out by the gate by which they entered in. Is the beautiful to be found in ornament? No, for gold embellishes only where it is in keeping. Is the beautiful that which seems ugly to no man? But it is a question of being, not of seeming. 
is it their fitness which makes things seem beautiful but in that case the fitness which makes them appear beautiful is one thing the beautiful another if the beautiful be the useful or that which leads to an end then evil would also be beautiful because the useful may also end evilly is the beautiful the helpful that which leads to the good no for in that case the good would not be beautiful nor the beautiful good because cause and effect are different thus they argued in the platonic dialogues and when we turn to the pages of aristotle we find him also uncertain and inclined to vary his definitions sometimes for him the good and pleasurable are the beautiful sometimes it lies in actions at others in things motionless or in bulk and order or is altogether undefinable antiquity also established canons of the beautiful and the famous canon of polycletus on the proportions of the human body fitly compares with that of later times on the golden line and with the ciceronian phrase from the tusculan disputations but these are all of them mere empirical observations mere happy remarks and verbal substitutions which lead to unsurmountable difficulties when put to philosophical test one important identification is absent in all those early attempts at truth the beautiful is never identified with art and the artistic fact is always clearly distinguished from beauty mimetic from its content plotinus first identified the two and with him the beautiful and art are dissolved together in a passion and mystic elevation of the spirit the beauty of natural objects is the archetype existing in the soul which is the fountain of all natural beauty thus was plato he said in error when he despised the arts for imitating nature for nature herself imitates the idea and art also seeks her inspiration directly from those ideas whence nature proceeds we have here with plotinus and with neoplatonism the first appearance in the world of mystical aesthetic destined to play so important a part in later aesthetic theory aristotle was far more happy in his attempts at defining aesthetic as the science of representation and of expression than in his definitions of the beautiful he felt that some element of the problem had been overlooked and in attempting in his turn a solution he had the advantage over plato of looking upon the ideas as simple concepts not as hypostases of concepts or of abstractions thus reality was more vivid for aristotle it was the synthesis of matter and form he saw that art or mimetic was a theoretic fact or a mode of contemplation Quote, but if poetry be a theoretic fact in what way is it to be distinguished from science and from historical knowledge End quote. thus magnificently does the great philosopher pose the problem at the commencement of his poetics and thus alone can it be posed successfully we ask the same question in the same words today but the problem is difficult and the masterly statement of it was not equalled by the method of solution then available 
he made an excellent start on his voyage of discovery but stopped halfway irresolute and perplexed poetry he says differs from history by portraying the possible while history deals with what has really happened poetry like philosophy aims at the universal but in a different way which the philosopher indicates as something more malon tha catholon which differentiates poetry from history occupied with the particular malon tha cath ekiston what then is the possible the something more and the particular of poetry aristotle immediately falls into error and confusion when he attempts to define these words since art has to deal with the absurd and the impossible it cannot be anything rational but a mere imitation of reality in accordance with the platonic theory a fact of sensual pleasure aristotle does not however attain to so precise a definition as plato whose erroneous definition he does not succeed in supplanting the truth is that he failed of his self-imposed task he failed to discern the true nature of aesthetic although he restated and re-examined the problem with such marvellous acumen after aristotle there comes a lull in the discussion until plotinus the poetics were generally little studied and the admirable statement of the problem generally neglected by later writers antique psychology knew the fancy or imagination as preserving or reproducing sensuous impressions or as an intermediary between the concepts and the feeling its autonomous productive activity was not yet understood in the life of apollonius of tyana philostratus is said to have been the first to make clear the difference between mimetic and creative imagination but this does not in reality differ from the aristotelian mimetic which is concerned not only with the real but also with the possible cicero too before philostratus speaks of a kind of exquisite beauty lying hidden in the soul of the artist which guides his hand and art antiquity seems generally to have been entrammeled in the meshes of the belief in mimetic or the duplication of natural objects by the artist philostratus and the other protagonists of the imagination may have meant to combat this error but the shadows lie heavy until we reach plotinus we find already astir among the sophists the question as to the nature of language admitting that language is a sign are we to take that as signifying a spiritual necessity phusis, or as a psychological convention nomus aristotle made a valuable contribution to this difficult question when he spoke of a kind of proposition other than those which predicate truth or falsehood that is logic with him uk is the term proper to designate desires and aspirations which are the vehicle of poetry and of oratory it must be remembered that for aristotle words like poetry belong to mimetic the profound remark about the third mode of proposition would one would have thought have led naturally to the separation of linguistic from logic and to its classification with poetry and art 
but the aristotelian logic assumed a verbal and formal character which set back the attainment of this position by many hundred years yet the genius of epicurus had an intuition of the truth when he remarked that the diversity of names for the same thing arose not from arbitrary caprice but from the diverse impression derived from the same object the stoics too seem to have had an inkling of the non-logical nature of speech but their use of the word lecton leaves it doubtful whether they distinguished by it the linguistic representation from the abstract concept or rather generically the meaning from the sound two aesthetic ideas in the middle age and in the renaissance well-nigh all the theories of antique aesthetic reappear in the middle ages as it were by spontaneous generation duns scotus erigina translated the neoplatonic mysticism of the pseudo dionysus the christian god took the place of the chief good or idea god wisdom goodness supreme beauty are the fountains of natural beauty and these are steps in the stair of contemplation of the creator in this manner speculation began to be diverted from the artifact which had been so prominent with plotinus thomas aquinas followed aristotle in distinguishing the beautiful from the good and applied his doctrine of imitation to the beauty of the second person of the trinity in quantum est imago expressa patris with the troubadours we may find traces of the hedonistic view of art and the rigoristic hypothesis finds in tertullian and in certain fathers of the church staunch upholders the retrograde savonarola occupied the same position at a later period but the narcotic moralistic or pedagogic view mostly prevailed for it best suited an epoch of relative decadence in culture it suited admirably the middle age offering at once an excuse for the newborn christian art and for those works of classical or pagan art which yet survived specimens of this view abound all through the middle age we find it for instance in the criticism of virgil to whose work were attributed four distinct meanings literal allegorical moral and anagogic for dante poetry was nihil aliud quam fictio rhetorica in musicac posita Quote, if the vulgar be incapable of appreciating my inner meaning then they shall at least incline their minds to the perfection of my beauty if from me ye cannot gather wisdom at the least shall ye enjoy me as a pleasant thing End quote. thus spoke the muse of dante whose convivio is an attempt to aid the understanding in its effort to grasp the moral and pedagogic elements of verse poetry was the gaia saenza a fiction containing many useful things covered or veiled end quote. it would be inexact to identify art in the middle age with philosophy and theology its pleasing falsity could be adapted to useful ends much in the same way as matrimony excuses love and sexual union this however implies that for the middle age the ideal state was celibacy 
that is, pure knowledge, divorced from art. The only line of explanation that was altogether neglected in the Middle Age was the right one. The poetics of Aristotle were badly rendered into Latin from the faulty paraphrase of Averroes by one Hermann, 1256. The nominalist and realist dispute brought again into the arena the relations between thought and speech, and we find Duns Scotus occupied with the problem in his De Modus Significandi Su Grammatica Speculativa. Abelard had defined sensation as confusa conceptio, and with the importance given to intuitive knowledge, to the perception of the individual, of the species specialissima in Duns Scotus, together with the denomination of the forms of knowledge as confuse, indistincte, and distincte, we enter upon a terminology which we shall see appearing again, big with results, at the commencement of modern aesthetic. The doctrine of the Middle Age, in respect to art and letters, may thus be regarded as of interest rather to the history of culture than to that of general knowledge. A like remark holds good of the Renaissance. Theories of antiquity are studied, countless treatises in many forms are written upon them, but no really new ideas, as regards aesthetic science, appear on the horizon. We find among the spokesmen of mystical aesthetic in the thirteenth century such names as Marsilio Ficino and Pico della Mirandola. Bembo and many others wrote on the beautiful and on love in the century that followed. The Dialoghi di Amore, written in Italian by a Spanish Jew named Leon and published in 1535, had a European success, being translated into many languages. He talks of the universality of love and of its origin, of beauty, that is, grace, which delights the soul and impels it to love. Knowledge of lesser beauties leads to loftier spiritual beauties. Leon called these remarks philographia. Petrarch's followers versified similar intuitions, while others wrote parodies and burlesques of this style. Luca Pacciolo, the friend of Leonardo, made the false discovery of the golden section, basing his speculating upon mathematics. Michelangelo established an empirical canon for painting, attempting to give rules for imparting grace and movement to figures by means of certain arithmetical proportions. Others found special meanings in colors. While the Platonicians placed the seat of beauty in the soul, the Aristotelians in physical qualities. Agostino Nifo, the Averroist, after several inconclusive remarks, is at last fortunate enough to discover where natural beauty really dwells. Its abode is the body of Giovanna d'Argona, princess of Tagliacozzo, to whom he dedicates his book. Tasso mingled the speculations of the Hippias Major with those of Plotinus. Tommaso Campanella, in his Poetica, looks upon the beautiful as signum boni, the ugly as signum mali. By goodness he means power, wisdom, and love. Campanella was still under the influence of the erroneous Platonic conception of the beautiful, but the use of the word sign in this place represents progress. It enabled him to see that 
things in themselves are neither beautiful nor ugly. Nothing proves more clearly that the Renaissance did not overstep the limits of aesthetic theory reached in antiquity than the fact that the pedagogic theory of art continued to prevail in the face of translations of the poetics of Aristotle and of the diffuse labours expended upon that work. This theory was even grafted upon the poetics, where one is surprised to find it. There are a few hedonists standing out from the general trend of opinion. The restatement of the pedagogic position, reinforced with examples taken from antiquity, was disseminated throughout Europe by the Italians of the Renaissance. France, Spain, England, and Germany felt its influence, and we find the writers of the period of Louis the Fourteenth, either frankly didactic, like Le Bossu, 1675, for whom the first object of the poet is to instruct, or with Le Menadier, 1640, speaking of poetry as cette science agréable qui mêle la gravité des préceptes avec la douceur du langage. For the former of these critics, Homer was the author of two didactic manuals relating to military and political matters, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Didacticism has always been looked upon as the poetic of the Renaissance, although the didactic is not mentioned among the kinds of poetry of that period. The reason of this lies in the fact that for the Renaissance all poetry was didactic, in addition to any other qualities which it might possess. The active discussion of poetic theory, the criticism of Aristotle and of Plato's exclusion of poetry, of the possible and of the verisimilar, if it did not contribute much original material to the theory of art, yet at any rate sowed the seeds which afterward germinated and bore fruit. Why, they asked with Aristotle, at the Renaissance, does poetry deal with the universal, history with the particular? What is the reason for poetry being obliged to seek verisimilitude? What does Raphael mean by the certain idea which he follows in his painting? These themes and others cognate were dealt with by Italian and by Spanish writers, who occasionally reveal wonderful acumen, as when Francesco Patrizio, criticizing Aristotle's theory of imitation, remarks, quote, All languages and all philosophic writings and all other writings would be poetry because they are made of words and words are imitations, end quote but as yet no one dared follow such a clue to the labyrinth, and the Renaissance closes with the sense of a mystery yet to be revealed. End of section 19 Recorded by Lisa Reichert